Hello and welcome to the Weekly Four podcast. The stars are bright, deep at night, on the Weekly Four podcast. Joseph Butcher's that song when he sings it on the podcast. So, I believe it has only been a week since our last record. No, wait, one second. Two yeah, weeks. Two weeks? All right, we're, <laughs> we're getting better. Getting better. Getting um, better all the time. Um, for those of you who just can't get enough of the Weekly Four podcast, please subscribe um, to listen to more of this high-level singing from Mr. Levenstein. I wish I could listen to more of my singing. Oh, wait, I could. I'm just going to listen to the recording tomorrow. Oh, there you go. So much free time on your hands. Ah, yes, free time. Yosef Free Time Levenstein. <laughs> name? It's an odd name your parents gave you, but teach their own. Um, so They're free spirits. So I actually, speaking of spirits, I actually have a drink tonight. Do you have a drink tonight, Mr. Levenstein? I do. L'chaim. L'chaim. What are you drinking? Uh, Oban 18 to some more Astro victories. Six more. Five down, six to go. That's actually our first topic. Mm, I'm enjoying a delicious Tepe Mezcal from Mizonte Street out of Guadalajara. Um, awesome. Uh, anyway, getting to uh, what I was just at, the Houston Astros on Mickey Minnell's 91st birthday, just to pour salt into Yankee fans' wounds who may be listening to this, um, beat the Yankees 3-2 to two in Game 2 of the ALCS. Astros now lead them 2 to nothing. Uh, they go and play on um, Saturday afternoon, Game 3 at Yankee Stadium. And then uh, Sunday, um, they play um, Game 4. And if the Yankees win one of those two, it will go to game five on Monday. And so if they win in, two of three, the Yankees, then game six will be back here on Tuesday. And if the Yankees force a game seven, it will be here on Wednesday night. All right. All right. All right. So in your opinion, which team played better tonight? So they both didn't play great. Uh, the pitching was very solid on both teams. The hitting not as much. Um, Astros got a couple of lucky breaks. Um, although the Yankees really only um, only got their runs off of an Astros pitcher who committed two errors on the same play, which is very rare to see. Um, if anybody can see the highlight, Google Framber Valdez fielding. So it was a hit back to the pitcher. There was a runner on first base, and Framber mishandled fielding it um, rather than kind of field it cleanly and at least get one out at second and then on to first. He bobbled it, and then after he bobbled it the first time, instead of uh, he knew he only had one play left at first, he then threw the ball past the first baseman, allowing the runners to get to second and third. They both Oof. eventually they both eventually score, but luckily those were the only two runs of the night. We had a three nothing lead before that, held on with a three two lead, and then our bullpen came in in the eighth and the ninth inning. He pitched great, fielding not so much. He could have used the designated fielder, uh, somebody to stand next to him that could field balls for him. Um, so he wouldn't, that would have been excellent for him tonight, but can't complain after winning three to two. Um, Altuve is still, I think, 0 for 22 to begin the playoffs, which is an insane slump for him, especially since he hit 300 on the season. Um, hopefully he gets his groove back, especially after a fan in the ninth inning came out of the stands to hug Altuve. 
this fan probably had way more than me and you're drinking right now, is mm. my guess. Um, and then had to explain to my son Gabe, who was at his first playoff game, brought them good luck, got the win. But why did he come out of the stands, Daddy? Why did the police arrest him, Daddy? Where is he going, Daddy? Like, this is exactly what I wanted to do for the next 30 minutes of my drive home, is explain to Gabe how, even though he was nice to Altuve by giving him a hug, you're not allowed to run onto the stands, you will get arrested, and you're not allowed to probably to go to any more Astros games. Um, as well as the fact that, why did Altuve hug him back? Because, how do I explain in that situation, the last thing you want to do is upset the crazy person coming at you. Um, yeah. <laughs> So that was a fun thing on the ride home. And that, and that is his new takeaway from this game is, did you hear the crazy thing that happened? That guy ran onto the stands and hugged Altuve. Um, so. How long did it take the police to get to them? Um, a good minute, minute and a half. It took them even longer to get the guy down. Like it took three or four of them. It was a big dude. Um, mm. um, but yeah, so um, my guess is he was dared. I, my, the story will likely not come out because the last thing they want to do is encourage more people to do stuff like that. It also was right before the the top of the ninth inning, so I was really worried it would screw up our closer because he's used to a set thing, and it took them it delayed the start of the last inning by about five minutes, uh, maybe three minutes. Um, but luckily, didn't seem to have much of an effect. Got the win, and now we fly to New York tomorrow for game three on Saturday. And on the Astro side, where did those points come from? Alex Bregman, um, uh, member of the tribe um, and and uh, not fan of the podcast. We have to let him make him listen to it first. But maybe if he listens to it, he'd be a fan. But uh, fans of ours, or we're fans of his, um, three-run home run um, on a long fly ball to left field, which I think the wind helped it a little bit. Probably would have gotten it out anyway, but uh, um, that was the Astros' only runs really of the game. So their offense has really not been there, uh, just some clutch home runs. Um, and luckily he had two members on. So um, this easily could be a series where Yankees are up 2 nothing with things going a little differently. Um, so, But I will take these two wins and head back to New York, and it guarantees another game no matter what at Minute Maid Park before the end of the season. So... Because even if the Yankees would win all three, game six would be here. So, I wonder if uh, Kenny and Ziggy are going to take any credit for uh, Bregman's home run since he had some uh, potent matzo ball soup from them before Yom Kippur, or maybe after Yom Kippur. Yeah, after Yom Kippur. But, I mean, that was two weeks ago, over two weeks ago. So, I mean, if their food stays in anybody's system that long, I don't think I would be taking credit for it. I would probably want to hide that fact. And also worth noting that tonight was an exceptionally rare occasion where Minute Maid Park was open, that the roof was open. It was. An even rarer occasion is my wife is out of town, and I'm the only one home with my three children. I mean, it's a rare occasion, a rare occasion tonight. So, And how's that going? So far, so good, although the baby's moving right now, so I hope I don't have to pause the podcast. I hope she falls back asleep, otherwise this is going to be a very long night for me. Oh, man, I hope she falls back asleep also. She looks like she's sitting up. Uh-oh. She can't hear me right now. I'm in an area far away with the door closed, but I have the monitor next to me. Oh, man. Oh, I heard something. That's... I hope she's just making noises. Let's Let's hope and pray. 
anyway, we'll we'll keep going with the podcast until um, <laughs> until my my dad duties, like God, um, and uh, potentially could come up. Um, the other thing that happened today. So, uh, anything else you want to talk about before we move off the Astros Yankees game, which was awesome? Just go Astros and happy that the Yankees lost. Sounds good to me. So the big trade in the NFL is Carolina Panthers traded probably the best player in fantasy football at running back or top three, um, Christian McCaffrey, who has been hurt, to the 49ers for picks. So the Panthers have been, let's let's call it bad um, this season and don't really have any real hope. They are currently one in five and um, not going anywhere. And this guy is kind of middle to end of his prime so they realize they're not going anywhere so um they are getting a second third and fourth round pick in this year's nfl draft and a fifth round pick in 2024 the 49ers to get christian mccaffrey um they san francisco really thinks this is the offensive weapon it's needed to compete for a super bowl mm-hmm. um and this is the first time since his rookie season in 2017 um when Carolina went eleven and five, uh, that he has a chance to even be on a winning team. So interesting. It's going to be he's missed twenty three out of the thirty three games during the twenty twenty one seasons after being injury free for the first three seasons. So, um, but so far he's been pretty healthy this season. Twenty six years old. Running backs typically have a window till they're about thirty. Um, um, but kind of a huge blockbuster trade, really swinging potentially making the 49ers a very, very difficult team to contend with. Where, what is their standing so far this season? The 49ers? Yeah. The 49ers are 3-3, three and three, but they're in a the division with the Rams, who are the defending Super Bowl champions, um, who are also 3-3. Three and three. The Seahawks, who are surprising 3-3 three and three so far. And Arizona, who just won today, is now 3-4. and four. So kind of in a division up for grabs in an NFC where other than the Eagles and the Vikings, nobody else is really playing that amazing. I mean, the Giants are also 5-1, and one, um, but the Niners think that they might have a golden opportunity to compete for a Super Bowl. Interesting. And um, what do you think? Um, I think for a second, third, and fourth round draft pick, to give your chance a team a chance, because all it ever is, any NFL team can get hot in the playoffs. But to give your team a chance to win it all, that's why you that's why you play the game. Um, so I think the 49ers have a good window. Uh, they trust their quarterback somewhat, but they needed really a superstar to take the pressure off Garoppolo because their main guy who they want with Trey Lance is out for the season. So I think this allows them to contend, and I think – it makes sense for the Panthers because they weren't going anywhere. So why hold on to an asset if you don't really think you have any shot of really competing over the next two or three years? I hear that. And in the NFL, it's worth it, you know, making that sort of sacrifice for one season of winning the Super Bowl. Yeah, potentially. And it's not, I mean, draft picks are unknown commodities. Um, Oh, and I think we might have to take a pause in a minute, but yes, I think um, I think I think it is worth it just to win one Super Bowl. I mean, I would I would trade away the entire Texans team for one Super Bowl, and that they were horrible for twenty years. I got you. Um, 
All right, do you want to pause and come back? Yes, we will be taking a short break. Um, and we, more sports and the weekly four when we get back. Stay tuned. And we are back. False start on the offense, five-yard penalty, replay first down. Uh, um, I don't know what any of that means. Yeah, it's a uh, football thing. Um, I think you just made all of that up right now. No. Um, but speaking of just finishing up the NFL and you wanted to make a football reference about uh, about that little break. So moving on to the next topic. Um uh, after me agreeing that I would trade 20 years of the Texans being horrible for a Super Bowl for them, victory. Not a Super Bowl appearance, but a Super Bowl victory. Um, the NBA and the NHL are also underway, so you have all four major sports going on right now. Um, it used to be a anomaly when you had all four in the same day, um, but it is not anymore with baseball kind of extending out through, till November Basketball and hockey kind of still starting uh, mid to late October. Um, and football, obviously, playing. So it used to be a rare occurrence when all four sports were occurring. But today was another one where all four were playing. So I think we used to talk about on the podcast how rare it was. And uh, it is now become very much commonplace. Hmm. Interesting. In October, late October, early November. So Right. And this time of year. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah, it's called uh, when my wife hates um, how much sports I watch time of year. Um, (laughs) She's like, oh, football. Oh, wait, baseball playoffs. And you want to go to all these games? You're like a kid. I'm like, like? I still am a kid. Um, You're in a candy shop. Well, um, I thought it was very apropos. I had a book about the Nickelodeon 90s with a – a uh, shot of scotch on top of it that basically sums up I'm somewhere between 8 and 65 on a given day. <laughs> so that exactly, and I say 8 and 65 is 73. That averages out to 36 and a half, which is the exact age I am. So uh, that was uh, just guessing, but look at that. So That was very appropriate. You are a... You look like you're 12, but you're... Only, like when I sh- only when I shave. You think like you're 80. And, and my likes are the same as an 8-year-old. And your likes are the same as an 8-year-old. Wow. Uh, but you're consistent. Uh, bagel and cream cheese for 10 straight years every day for lunch at school. So gotta love consistency. I'm, I was maybe the easiest child in the world to make lunch for. Cinnamon uh, raisin bagel and cream cheese. So mm. The fact that like I have friends of mine who grew up with me that they literally remember that um, just shows you how much it was consistent that they probably don't remember much else from first to 10th grade, but that they remember. Um, so, I mean, I will say a cinnamon raisin bagel with cream cheese is one of the yummier things. Yeah. And again, who else? I mean, if you're not able to have hot food, cause it's not like we had microwaves at school. Um, like what else is a solid lunch that, doesn't need to be heated up. Like once I got to like eleventh, twelfth grade, I ate some cold pasta, but cold pasta is not mm. is not a cinnamon raisin bagel. With cream cheese. No, I'd rather a cinnamon raisin bagel over cold pasta. Yeah, with cream cheese. Yeah. Moving on, um, I will let you get started. We are going to talk about the second most famous um, uh, music airplane crash, uh, the day the music sort of died. 
Um, the Leonard Skinner airplane crash in 1977. The most famous one, as you know, is the one that killed Buddy Holly, the Big Bopper, Richie Valens. Um, and that famous song, The Day the Music Died, was um, about that. So, yeah. Uh, so, this was the second most famous, uh, the Leonard Skinner airplane crash. So, yeah. Take it away, Mr. Levenstein. Uh, the band was on an airplane and it crashed. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Did it no, kill so the lead 40, singer? 45 years ago, um, 1977, the, the plane crashed. It was a chartered airplane, and it killed um, three of them. So uh, Van Zent, Steve Gaines, and Cassie Gaines were all killed, and then um, the rest of the band were seriously injured. Um, basically... Wow, 20 other people survived. That's crazy. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, you know, we've talked about it before, these plane crashes. Like, you know, you have these crazy plane crashes that people survive. Um, you know, to yeah. me... Well, well only six... What's crazy is that only six people died. Two crew... Two of them crew and, and uh, 20 other passengers survived. So it's crazy that kind of of the people who died, it was three members of the band uh their road manager the captain the first officer i wonder if maybe they were uh, i'm trying to read now before we keep talking about it but it just seemed um um yeah van zandt was wearing the seatbelt, um um and um it's it's just uh, it's just it, most of the survivors were towards the back of the plane. I guess the the, the more of the leads were towards the front of the plane. Um, all of the survivors were seriously injured. Um, kind of awful, um, but really insane. Um, so I guess again, typically the people who are the lead singer of the band are in the front of the plane. So um, yeah, pretty pretty sad and crazy. Did it? Did you read as to what was the cause of it? Uh, no, but well, well I just did fuel exhaustion due to pilot error. So apparently the plane ran out of gas, and um, because the power, um, the pilot made an error. Ooh, such a shame. Apparently, so- this pile who was a. Um, I guess maybe part of the NTSB um, said in an interview with Howard Stern later that the fuel gauge in the older model plane was known to malfunction and the pilots had neglected to check the tanks manually before taking off. So um, because they didn't check the tanks, they probably thought they had more gas than it was. Maybe there was a gauge that thought that it said they had more. So um, very sad. And apparently the band restarted up um, uh, with his brother. But in the five years, no, it was ten years, I guess. Well, around yeah. ten years. Yeah, seventy-seven to eighty-seven. I don't know. But I'm saying they first formed in in like sixty-four. It looks like. So between that, the thirteen years they were together, they released five albums. Um, and you know, to me, it's one of those bands that you know, not every song of theirs is. I don't love every song of theirs, but. I certainly enjoy listening to every one of their songs and I really enjoy their style. My favorite song being 
Simple Man. Um, there's just something about that song that when I listen to it, um, I can almost, like, I guess I relate to it to a certain degree. Um, because so like, you are just a simple man, Mr. Levenstein? Mm, no, it's more because of, like, you know, I, I often reference, like, certain lessons that my mom taught me. Um, and, you know, certain things that she said to me when I was younger that sort of, I guess, stuck. And, um, and so sort of hearing the song where he talks about the things that his mom is telling him, um, resonates with me. I will say that one of our fans, um, and I, uh, Rabbi Sprung have debated simple man. Uh, one of my colleagues is a huge fan of this song. Um, but, what and I the, really like, what the was the debate? Um, a certain like like shallowness like from some one perspective is like certain shallowness in the advice that he's being given by his mom um i sort of counter that by saying it's not that it's shallow it's like the simplicity which from there you can draw complexity but you know sort of like these simple rules of like how to approach life but Obviously, there's more depth to life than so just the simple rules that are being outlined um, in the song. Hello? I think we lost Mr. Levenstein. Not sure what he was doing. Um, but um, we will get him back so he can talk more about Simple Man. Um, hold, we will be right back. That was odd. Uh, you all of a sudden stopped talking, so I had to cover for you. All I said was it's really sad um, how their career was cut short by this accident. And um, I often think about what other beautiful music they could have created if they hadn't you know, lost most of their band in a plane crash. Yeah, I mean, you have a lot of, um, a lot of creative genius that's cut short early from either tragic accidents or self-inflicted and uh it's um it's lost on the world forever and by um, the way the, the self-inflicted actually upsets me even more because well it's actually a two-sided thing right this is like negligent that the negligence is is upsetting but you know human error and whatever and these things happen um, with the self-inflicted, it's so upsetting because on one hand, I believe that artistic beauty comes from a place of darkness. So it makes sense that people that create really beautiful art um, have a lot of pain inside. And, you know, sometimes that just overwhelms them. Um, and so they tend to create the most beautiful things and then, um, you know, kill themselves. And because they just get overwhelmed by the darkness and, um, it's also equally or even more devastating. But, um, but yeah, either way, when you have someone in this world that's creating a beautiful anything, it's just creating beauty and beautiful art. And Leonard Skinner's music is really beautiful. Um, to lose it, it's such a, such a shame. Got it. Um, anyway... Um, I, I'm a fan of theirs, but not a huge fan. So I, I will um, d uh, cede the point to you on this one. Um, <laughs> moving on, the convention of 1818. 
um, which I just was reading, was, was the uh, treaty uh, between the U.S. and the United Kingdom uh, resolving boundary issues between the U.S. and Canada. Um, shocker that you brought this one up. I wonder if maybe it's because you were born in Canada? Well, I yes. Um, I do have a soft spot for Canada. Or you're so old you remember the 204-year-old convention. <laughs> yeah, I wish I could live that long. So... Do you? We're going to get into that in a different podcast because I, <laughs> I didn't say live forever, but I wouldn't mind living for a bit longer. Yeah, um, two hundred years. But what if? Whatever. We're not going to get there. But what if everybody else around you didn't get to live that long? I know it's it's a challenge. Um, so what's interesting about the convention of eighteen eighteen is that um, there's sort of like this informal border between the territory of Canada, which was under the control of the United Kingdom, and the United States. And this is where they formalized along essentially the 49th parallel. So that would represent the border, thereby establishing what is, I believe, the longest and safest border in the world. And, um, you know, you sort of, I, I would look at that as one of the things that was necessary in order to establish that positive relationship between Canada and the United States, because if you don't have a clearly defined border, you have constant disputes. And so, um, you know, 1818 wasn't that long after 1776. And so establishing that border and sort of finalizing that um, probably was one of the um, building blocks that um, would have continued to, which would add to, I guess, the continued friendship and partnership between Canada and the United States. Um, also, if you think about it, 1818 was only six years after the War of 1812 where Correct. the British had just burned down Washington, D.C. So um, this is probably also necessary in order to sort of put that stuff behind the two, the territory or the United Kingdom and United States and, and move forward. So I think it's a pretty monumental thing in terms of like establishing the relationship between Canada and the United States. And, um, and yeah, and, you know, it's interesting, by the way, because I was scrolling through Wikipedia on the same day. Um, it was further back in history, but... Chile and Bolivia and a few other countries also like had finalized like border disputes. I don't know if it's a coincidence and coincidence that they all did it on October 20th, but um, the convention of 1818 was one that stood out to me. You got it. Yeah. Um, it was, um, went into effect January 30th of 1819. Um, and, uh, it, it, Apparently, by the mid-1840s, the tide of U.S. immigration, as well as U.S. political movement, to claim the entire Tory uh, to the renegotiation of the agreement regarding Oregon. So, because um, apparently they had to renegotiate the Far West. Um, so, um, but other than that, it uh, the the two countries are probably the closest allies of any two in the world. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't think that's a um, I don't think that's hyperbole. Um, just because of of what they kind of really mean to each other in terms of trade and and everything else that kind of goes along with that trade security, yeah, resources. Well, I guess that's trade. It, but it, trade would, even though what's interesting, uh, especially to me, about all of that is um, is the fact that how different um, politically they are in terms of. Um, uh, just in terms of kind of Canada being way more socialist country than the U.S. is, especially regarding medicine and other things. So 
for as similar as they are, um, still kind of uh, different. Similarities, though, are where it counts, which is democracy, freedom, um, you know, capitalism for the most part. Um, and so, you know, those are areas where you could potentially create, you know, just call it strife, right? And I, I think about, you know, Mexico, right? Like we're on in Mexico. Like Mexico is an interesting country, but because of both the fact that Mexico is like the gateway to Latin America. And so you have a lot of people that come through Mexico into the United States illegally, but then you have the drugs and there's a lot of corruption there. So you see like, and, and at the end of the day, it's, it's actually also a capitalist, technically democracy, technically there's freedom of speech. It's also the fact that it's a mostly a different language than what's being spoken in America. That's true. And uh, also, uh, except maybe in Texas and the Southwest, but well, and it's also interesting because Canada was a big part of the population of Canada where people that were living in the colonies that when the British lost in 1776, they moved up to Canada. Correct. Um, whereas like Mexico, there were like full blown wars and it was like the wars with the UK and, you know, the crown and not necessarily with Canadians. Whereas like Mexico, there were full blown wars between the United States and Mexico as, you know, us territory technically is Mexico, Mexican territory. Like, so there's also just, there's a, a very different history to the South and to the North. And, um, but I, I still come back to the fact that, um, you know, the Mexicans didn't burn down Washington, D.C., and the Canadians did. <laughs> so you can come back to it and say, well, I think it's more they that... They didn't burn it down, but they might have wanted to. Yeah, well, uh, well, they for sure wanted to, but the um, the bottom line is... is did that, you, you know, ever see Red Dawn? I love Red Dawn. Uh, Mexico invades the United States. Wasn't it Nicaragua? Nicaragua? I thought it was Mexico. I think it's Nicaragua. Maybe Mexico also. Um, but by the way, well, so before I, I pivot to that point in a second, pivot. I'm just saying that, you know, the fact is it's like um, you have corruption and in, even if it's a democracy and capitalist and whatever, um, you know, the relationship will be different. The Germans in World War One, the, uh, the plan to invade the United States went through Mexico. Wow. The, the Germans in World War I had, a, had come up with a plan to invade the United States and they proposed or asked Mexico if they could land their troops in Mexico and then move them up. And the Mexicans said, well, are you crazy? So, um, that. Yeah, that would not have gone well. Mm-hmm. Um, moving right along, um, we are now talking about the Red Scare. The Red Scare. So it is the 75th anniversary of the beginning of the House on Un-American Activities Committee um, investigating Hollywood um, and trying to figure out who were socialists to try to blacklist them. Um, uh, sorry, who were communists um, and to blacklist them, um, even though it's it didn't really um, get... Um, I wouldn't say, not that it didn't get, not that it wasn't bad already in the 40s, but really Joseph McCarthy, the 50s, is really when it kind of, really kind of reached its zenith. But this committee began now under Harry Truman, who was a Democratic president, because, again, a lot of people think about it um, as when it was under Eisenhower. 
Um, but um, just um, it, it, not the finest day in American history. Uh, it seems like there's a lot of those lately. Um, but uh, but something that's very important to talk about. When did this switch between the Democrats being conservative and the Republicans being liberals happen? Um, Nixon, I think. Nixon was known as the new, it was like the new right under Nixon because you had lots of more moderate, because if you look at Kennedy's presidency, he was kind of like almost a moderate Republican. Um, Some of it, he's got maybe some more social stuff than you would have in a typical, but you had most people who were moderates Kennedy, Nixon in 60 was very tight. And then Nixon, I think in 68, figured out that if he kind of took on more, it's, it's typically thought of as 68. Uh, we would really need more of a political scientist here to answer this than me. I'm just r- r- trying to remember um, one of my poli sci classes from freshman year of college. So. No worries. Yeah, and then the other thing is with the whatever you want to call it, QAC or the Red Scare, I always, and and part of this is like, I think, um, influence from my, I don't know, parents or grandparents or something, but there was an anti-Semitic. Yes, definitely. Most, yeah, oh yeah, most of the people they went after were Jewish people in Hollywood, Jewish screenwriters, Jewish, um, yeah. Um, so it's not a but what but but because again most of the people who were involved that you had a lot of jews who were really involved with communism my grandfather not a big fan of those people he saw firsthand how awful communism was um but a lot of people unfortunately didn't pick up on the fact of how horrible it is and got involved with it doesn't mean they should have been ostracized or blacklisted as a result of that um but that is unfortunately what ended up happening well i mean it's interesting and again this is based more on movies than anything else but like outside of the soviet union people really didn't know how bad it was inside the soviet union correct um and again if you think about it in its pure form like when you people hear like think about communism it's utopia it's society it's everybody working together it's kind of like a kibbutz um but um uh, kibbutz is more socialism but 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 similar ideal in 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 a perfectly form but it just it doesn't work and um people are not people are out for themselves (laughs) so uh, i don't know if there's more to say than that but i think that the the time, this was uh, 1947, right? Correct. Yeah, so if you think about, and, you know, it's one of these things like that we've talked about before. It's, if you look at the, the historical context, um, you know, 47, World War II just wrapped up, um, yeah. it's beginning this, of the Cold War. Exactly. And people thinking, oh, man, it, uh, these people are spies for the Russians. The Russians are our new enemy. Um all that in a bag of chips. And by the way, like a genuine, probably not legitimate fear that the Russians were coming for America. Yeah. Right. The whole reason for the domino strategy was because they genuinely thought that the Russians were going to take, that the, that the communists were going to take over everything. And so there was a real fear, almost like clear and present danger style 
of um, communism taking over the United States. So, you know, that definitely would trigger an overreaction. Um, was this also like Hoover? Was he involved in this? J. Edgar, it was pre him. I'm pre pretty sure. Okay. Uh, I think I think J. Edgar Hoover and the FBI was set up specifically for this. Yeah. Um, if I remember my... By the way, I love the portrayal of J. Edgar Hoover in Man in the High Castle. I'm forgetting exactly. He was about... basically like an uber Nazi. Like he was like one of oh, like... oh 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 in the alternate universe. You mean? Yeah 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, it's pretty funny. So, but anyway, but yeah, no. So it was an anti-Semitic. It was an. It was. I, mean, I don't even know if it was an overreaction or not. Right? Like they nipped it in the butt, bud. In theory, by taking these actions, what would have happened if you know people were allowed to like continue to freely pursue a communist agenda in the United States in nineteen in the late forties and early fifties? Um, that will be left to an alternate reality. Although I don't think having government excluding people from industries based off their political beliefs was the right way to go. No, we still have a very strong anti-vehemence towards that. For sure, for sure. No, there was definitely an overreaction. Um, you know, again, in hindsight, we say it was an overreaction. At the time, I mean, I don't know. No, but... even at the time, people were like, "This is insane." Did anything else ever, anything similar to that, ever happen after that? Um. It. it... And there were spies, not, but not like something like Yeah, this. nothing. I mean, you have the Julius Nethel Rosenberg case where they were actual spies for the yeah. Russians um, that ended up, both of them, getting um, also sentenced the, to death. In the historical context, also, you're literally two years after Japanese Americans were put into camps. Internment camps. Internment right. camps, that's what they're called. Right, so it's like, relative to that, like... I'm saying in the, in the context of history at that time, um, I mean, again, I, I get people protested and you know, these whatever, but like, you know, if you look at sort of everything that's going on at the time, um, not the craziest thing, but um, in hindsight, obviously we say, oh, this was bad. And at the time, obviously people were protesting because people's freedoms were being stomped on um, and the government was intervening where it probably should not have, but still, except looking at everything that was going on at the time, you know, I, I guess my question is, was it in the context at the time, you know, with the people that were doing this thinking that they were overreacting? Probably not. No, uh, they didn't think they were overreacting, but they probably were. Yeah. Um, yes, it, it's very hard to judge people with what we know now and yeah, using exactly. 2022 values and putting them back 75 years ago. Exactly. But like you said, at the time people were demonstrating and yes, protested exactly. what the decision was. So exactly. Um, and, 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 and again, once McCarthy took it to the nth Zenth degree, um, you really had people like, um, um, Walter Winchell and a couple of other ones, um, um, who really just called him out for it and said, that he's a giant bully and that this stuff has to stop. So, wasn't he your favorite president, Truman? Yeah, yeah but but Truman wasn't the one leading the House on Un-American Activities. That's right. I mean, you know, that was Congress. Um, yeah. 
uh, or the House, literally. Congressional um, committees. Huh. Maybe that's where all the problems lie. Like, what you, is the point of a congressional committee? To investigate stuff on behalf of the American public that they deem fit. Checks and balances. But it's not that the American public deems fit. It's that the House deems fit. Yeah, but they're elected representatives of their constituents. They right. all... Obviously, they... Yes, they, yeah. they all... Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. None of, they're all selfless actors who just want what's best for this country. Who's it I just heard? Um, Petraeus apparently is a advisor or something or consultant to like... Raytheon or something like that. It's like, how are you in your position? And well, no, he's out of his position now. Right, right. Trace is not general anymore. But that that that's that, someone else. That yeah. checks out. Uh, well, speaking of the uh, military-industrial complex. Oh, please let us know how World War Three will be fought. Well, I don't know how World War Three will be fought, but I do know that right now it seems to be that most of the fighting in Ukraine consists of artillery and drones. Um, I think the so this and I bring that up because it's 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 interesting in many ways. So the artillery is not one sided. The Ukrainians have been given some serious firepower by the Americans and NATO. Um, and you know, a lot of the documentary, I watch a lot of like these vice documentaries or just people from the Ukrainian front lines that are posting like GoPros and YouTube videos from their fighting there. And it's a serious amount of fighting is taking place. Um, these artillery battles where they're just lobbing artillery back and forth at either artillery positions or at soldier positions. Um, and that's where like most of the fighting is really taking place that way. And then once the artillery had just like completely decimated the other side, then soldiers come in and then there's like pretty close range fighting. Um, yeah. where, like, I mean, the, soldiers... the goal is to minimize casualties on, um, on, on whichever side is the one sending the drones. Well, and I think it's also a function of the soldiers training, right? Like when you have like the, 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 that's like a whole separate thing, but you know, an American, the American strategy, like you have know, very or, or better or well-equipped and well-trained soldiers, you send them in, you know, pretty early on to, um, to take out, you know, the, the enemy. Whereas like the Russians and the Ukrainians, their soldiers are both ill-equipped and poorly trained. And so they really just want, so you're right, they want to minimize casualties. But the other side of it is, is that, you know, going in and if they, they were to go to fight with each other, it would be a disaster. Like it would just be, it would be awful on both sides. Um, so they're just basically pounding each other with artillery. And then one side, once they feel like they've weakened the other side, will send in some soldiers and, you know, pretty like non-sophisticated um, battles between infantry units. And usually the side that, you know, usually there's a one side retreats and they sort of carry on. And that's what's been happening. But, Recently, the Russians started using drones, um, and they've described these drone swarms. But it's funny because, again, this is like where I hate the media. They're they're defining the time of these drone swarms, but you know, it's like ten, twenty, thirty drones, um, and and it's just funny because in like the at least I'm 
my understanding of like U.S. strategy and I think Israeli strategy also. Like when they talk about drone swarms, they're talking about hundreds of drones. Right now, the Russians are using a couple dozen drones at a time, um, but they're sending in these drones now um, and using them as um, pretty strategically targeted weapons, um, which they're sending into civilian areas, sometimes to hit civilian targets, but usually just for infrastructure. Um, and what's interesting, I was just reading an article earlier today, which was basically saying like they're being used to hit infrastructure, but there, the theory is it's actually more psychological. Um, big, big drones, um, each one costs like $20,000, so they're not wow. small, they're, they're very loud, um, and it's messing with people's heads. You know, the wow. civilians are hearing this whirring noise and they sort of circle around, circle around, circle around. And then they're kamikaze drones. So they choose a target and then you just crash into it. And they have between like, you know, 80 to, I think it's like 80 to like 100 pounds of explosives on them. And they Jeez. do a fair amount of damage. Um, but they're circling around and then people are like having, like freaking out. Everyone just sort of standing there watching these drones, not knowing where they're going to go. Yeah. Wow. Um, Interestingly, awful and horrifying at the same time. Yeah, and now both America and Israel, I, I, this I know, have counter the, the counter weapon of choice to these drones: electronic warfare, not um, missiles. Right, right. Because you take down the drone technology, they can't. Yeah, that's exactly right. So, anyway, so that's that's what's happening right now. Um, the crazy thing in all of this is like. Every single day this fighting continues, um, yeah, we just are, you know, the risk of this spiraling out of control is, is just increasing. Um, and so right now, you know, this is, it's artillery, it's drones, but um, it's really scary. The question, the question is, is Putin a rational actor in terms of not using nuclear weapons? And nobody knows the answer to that. I don't even think it's that. I don't even know if it's, it's not even a rational thing, right? Um, you know, could he use a tactical nuclear weapon on a battlefield? And, and the West doesn't respond? Yes. I think the answer to that is yes. So, you know, to answer your question, could he, is he, it, would it be rational of him to launch like a full-scale nuclear attack against Western Europe or the United States? No. Would it? Would a rational decision be made to use a tactical nuclear weapon on a battlefield against Ukrainian soldiers? Um, I don't know. And would the West respond? I would hope not. Like that's not grounds for war between the United States and Russia. Grounds for war between, to, between Russia and Ukraine, which is already happening, but a tactical nuclear weapon on a battlefield, it's a horrible thing, and it's definitely a red line that's crossing, but that's, that's why. Like, is it grounds for World War III to start? Uh, I hope not. I mean... Uh, nobody has had to ask these ethical questions in a long time. So I don't even know if it's ethical. Look, 
if he wants to. Well, uh, no, you have to because if you if you what you're saying is if you're using a nuclear weapon, that is the point where, um, I think he, the world has to get. I I don't know. Assad used chemical weapons in Syria. No one got involved, right? Um, yeah, but chemical chemical weapons are not nuclear weapons because chemical uh, nuclear weapons can do damage for way longer than chemical weapons can do. Okay, so uh, some field in Ukraine won't be usable for 100 years. Like, okay, that's what a tactical nuke would do. Um, and in terms of killing people, the chemical weapons kill many more or at least equal amount of people than a tactical nuke would. Um, if he launched a ballistic missile at Kiev with a nuclear warhead, that's a totally different story. Right. And, and I don't think that's like on the table. Um, I think this is more, I heard on the all in podcast, you know, what, um, David Sachs was talking about was basically the, the, if Crimea was being overrun by Ukrainian soldiers, would they use a tactical nuke to stop that from happening? And the answer is probably. And then the question just becomes, well, what does the U S do at that point? And I don't know, like this is, it's, it's, it's sort of like, this is a war happening between two countries. Neither of them are allies to the United States or anyone else in Western Europe. So why are you going to, and, and it's horrible if it happens, but the whole war is horrible. So I don't know. war is hell. Um, Let's get um, stuff. Uh, we're going to keep moving on. By the way, this may end up being a two-part podcast for our listeners. So if you get part one done, um, great. Um, and then this might end up being part two. So stay tuned because we still have a lot more topics to cover. Um, Supreme Court and student loans. Mr. Levenstein, take it away. Yeah. So um, the Biden administration in an attempt to... Well, how they presented is alleviate pressure from the population that are burdened by student loans. Um, there was um, so you know basically Biden put in, in put together I think it was an executive order. I don't remember exactly what it's described as, um, but basically a student loan debt relief program. Um, and there was a request placed to the Supreme Court to block it from um, going into. Oh, I got. I got to pause. I'm sorry. One of my kids is crying, and it's not the baby. Okay. Bye. Bye.